Wes, you don't have to go. Uh, as, you, as you know, Chris has been preaching through 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I was really impressed by his, by his sermons, and I wanted to recap some of that. He's taught us about the problems at the church of Corinth, that people were drunk at communion, that they were eating everything before others could come, and that they put up with the sins of their brothers. They did this because they had an incorrect view of spiritual maturity. The Corinthians thought that maturity was measured in isolation based on personal experiences. They would ask themselves, how many mountaintop experiences have I had recently? How longly, longly, how long and how loudly did I speak in tongues at our last worship service? How much money did I give away? They were so focused on themselves that they never concerned themselves with the sins of others. Their spiritual maturity was like the Titanic, is unsinkable in the harbor. But Paul corrected them. The true test of maturity is not your personal experiences, but your love for your brothers and sisters put into practice. And that's tough because some of us are icebergs. We have a lot under the surface that takes some patience and some kindness to work through. It's not just, it's not a bad thing. We're just problemed people. Chris has gone over these verses, um, and I'm going to read them again, but I've added a little bit in the brackets just to draw out the interpersonal implications here. Love is patient with people and kind to them. Love does not envy others what they have or boast about what it has to others. It is not arrogant in comparison of itself to others or rude when it speaks to others. It does not insist on its own way when others want differently. All of these are necessarily interpersonal practices. And that would bring us to the end of verse five and verse six, we did skip a little bit. Um, verse six says, it is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It would bring us there, but Chris isn't here. So let's go back to Leviticus. I'm joking. I'm going to Exodus. Chapter 33 and 34. Um, this is just a detour. I will talk about 1 Corinthians 13. But I think that some verses from Exodus can give us a foundation for what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians. In Exodus 33, Moses asked to see the glory of God. And God replied, <clears throat> I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in your presence. So God hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, and then as he passed before him, he proclaimed his name, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
These verses are directly referenced at least 30-ish times in the Old Testament, um, and the attributes in them, very important, they come up over and over and over throughout the scripture. And I want to draw attention to three of the attributes, three of the things that God says about himself. He is slow to anger, he is forgiving, but he is just. He doesn't let evil slide. These are basically three sides of the same coin. It's how God loves people who sin against him. He is patient, he is kind, but he's also just. So based on the foundation of God's character, we can learn from Paul how we ought to love when people sin against us. We must not be easily provoked. We must not keep record of wrongs. And we must treat sinfulness correctly because love is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I find it helpful sometimes to think about what a verse definitely does not mean. Um, I've, if I can figure out like the opposite of a verse, then I both have the verse before me to move toward and then something behind me that I'm like, okay, I definitely don't want to go that direction. I think the opposite of 1 Corinthians 13, 5 through 6 would sound something like this. Pride has a short temper and is vindictive. It rejoices with wrongdoing and resists the truth. So we've got our real verse about love in front of us to draw us forward, and we have the opposite thrown behind us to remember what to move away from. So let's start back at the beginning. Love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. What does this mean? Um, it's kind of the flip side of being patient which Chris had a whole sermon on. So um, if you're being patient, you're not being irritable. Some other translations say that love is not easily provoked. It means that you don't immediately get ticked off when your brother tells you to stop hitting yourself. You don't get worked up in anger the moment something happens and you aren't forced into action when someone insults you. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. What's your first response when things go wrong? Do you give full vent to your anger? Because God says that's the foolish thing to do. The wise man restrains his spirit, not giving full vent to everything he's thinking. This is tough. Let me tell you, I've had a few landlords my first landlady in Manhattan became instantly infamous among my friend group when on our first tour of the house, we enter the bathroom, she looks up in the corner at the shower, points directly at mold, and says, there is no mold. It is immaculate. <laughs> I'm not lying. <laughs> now, either she was just blind or trying to pull the wool over our eyes, and we could have just laughed our way out of that house, or we could have given her a piece of our minds. But the place was cheap, <laughs> and we liked it, so we kept our mouths shut. If we had been more foolish in that moment, we could have missed out on the thousand blessings that God had in store for us in that little moldy house. 
Or there was this other situation that Marissa and I were in recently where we felt like we were being taken advantage of. We responded professionally and firmly, but we never made any accusations or burnt any bridges just in case we were wrong. And we kind of were. In just a few short weeks, it seemed like the whole situation had turned around 180 degrees. And not only were we back in good relationship with these people, but we were receiving grace and patience and encouragement from the last place we ever expected it. By not being quick to anger, by not being provoked, we received blessings from God. There are a lot of people and a lot of things out there that tend to provoke us. And apart from the work of the Spirit in our lives, we would even and maybe especially be provoked by God's word. That's how unbelievers around us function. That's how we function in the flesh before we came to faith, sometimes after. When we hear the law of God in the flesh, it is death to us. It is threatening our pride. So we in our flesh were irritable with God. We pushed him away. And our culture also really enjoys being irritable. It's always looking for opportunities to be angry and to let someone have a piece of your mind. You see that where people hear that the Bible tells them that, yes, God cares about what you do with your body. God cares about what you wear. God cares about all these things that you want to do. And it threatens us. So people march off to TikTok and they get hundreds of thousands of views and they get called queen. It's kind of a, a, a loop, feedback loop that makes them feel even more prideful. But that's not God's way. Proverbs 15, 18 says that a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. He who is slow to anger quiets contention. Who is he that is slow to anger? Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger. If God were to hand out Johnson County style business cards, slow to anger would be right there on the front. Let's say Yahweh, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, period, after each of them. Let's just think about how slow God is getting angry. He created an innocent man and woman and told them, if you disobey me, you will die. And they did disobey him, but did he kill them? No, he clothed them and he let them live longer. They did die eventually because of their sin, but from that moment on, God's anger entered into forbearance. Then Cain killed Abel. God didn't kill him either, but protected him. And things didn't get better after that. You've got sons of God marrying daughters of men. Now there's all these Nephilim all over the place. And eventually, every intention of the thoughts of mankind's heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. Even so, in 1 Peter 3.20, it says that God's 
patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Everyone everywhere is always only evil, and God says, all right, I'm coming down there. You've got 120 years to listen to my prophet and repent. Noah, get building. Even after the flood, God was slow to anger with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and everyone else. If God were, ang- were irritable, there would have been a lot of lightning bolt smiting going on. But just go read the Bible. There wasn't. There still isn't. Of course, we see God's slowness to anger most perfectly in Christ. People called him a drunkard and a sinner and even demon-possessed. Did he respond in fury? No, he most often responded with precise questions and pointed parables. He wasn't provoked when Judas betrayed him and the others abandoned him, when the Pharisees accused him and the crowds cried out, when they whipped him and beat him, spat and ridiculed, flogged and thorned and crucified, unprovoked, he made his way up the hill and onto the cross in order to die for us. And he made it clear that he could have called an army of angels to destroy them all in a moment, but he is slow to anger. When they mocked him and told him to come down off the cross, he could have, and it probably wouldn't have ended very well for them. But he is slow to anger. Again, Proverbs 18, or sorry, 15, 18 says, a man who is slow to anger quiets contention. Christ, his slowness to anger has quieted the contention between God and man. Christ has reconciled, or God has reconciled to himself all things through the cross. And only by patience has peace been made between heaven and earth. So we too should seek peace here on earth. And we find it through love, which is not irritable, but slow to anger. So don't be provoked by your brothers and sisters in Christ, and especially don't be provoked by the Holy Spirit or the Word of God. Because when God wants to work on something in your life, it can come across a little offensive. And then it's really easy to become defensive and angry and say, no, God, I don't need that. I don't drink too much. I'm fine. Go away. But if you want to become Christ-like, you need to learn to humbly submit to the word of God. It's the only way to be sanctified. James 1.20 says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Your anger will not make you a better person. You can't sanctify yourself or anyone else by being angry in the flesh. Now the Bible does say to be angry, but do not sin. There is a righteous anger, but it is God's anger and not man's. We should be angry with what God is angry with, not just what we want to be angry with. We should be angry at sin and angry when God and his people are being slandered. We should be angry when people peddle God for money 
just like when Jesus got angry and turned out the money changers. This is not a prideful anger. This is a slow, patient, measured anger that does not sin, but deals with sin in righteousness. So do not be irritable, but be slow to anger. Now, if being irritable is responding wrongly to sin in the moment, then being resentful is dealing with sin wrongly after the fact. Irritability snaps back, but resentfulness nurses a grudge. And the flesh loves grudges. Our culture, again, has a pretty big problem with resentfulness. Um, we've all heard of cancel culture. People go hunting for something wrong someone said at some point in a tweet or video or something. They drudge it up from the depths of 2011 and they put it on public display. They bring up someone's old sins and they demand that that person be fired or removed from polite society or publicly shamed. And usually the person who's being called out will kind of grovel and beg for forgiveness and that just puts the power back in the hands of the person who brought up their old sins. The most popular sins of our day to be drudged up, those most desired to be begrudged, you may have noticed our intolerance and racism. These are bad things, but if your sin is 10 years old, and if it's gone, especially if you're in Christ, there's no need to pull it back up. What resentful what resentful, what the resentful heart is really saying when it does this is I'm going to hate you. I'm going to hate your family. I'm going to hate your friends and your offspring for generations because you said fill in the blank. And if your father happened to be the person who said fill in the blank, then you're off to a bad start. Resentfulness will blind you to what's really going on, because you can only see what you want to see. It destroys your ability to deal with people coherently. If you just hate someone and resent them, you're going to be on the lookout for one of two things. You're going to look for more wrongs that you can harp on, or you're going to look for opportunities to gloat over that person's suffering. So you're looking for more wrongs to harp on or you're just going to be waiting for something bad to happen to them so you can be happy about it. And we do this in our flesh because we're more children of the devil than we are children of God and this is what Satan does. He is the accuser of the brothers and he loves to bring up records of wrongs. The devil is counting your sins and always looking for more to add to his list or an opportunity to bring them up to gloat over you. And he hates you because if you are in Christ, your father is God. He hates you because of who your father is. This is how Satan treats us. This is how we treat each other in the flesh. But we should never think that God treats us like this. God is the God who forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He does not resent people for who their fathers are. The Israelites thought that God resented them. 
They thought they were being punished for things they never did, but that God begrudged their fathers. In Ezekiel 18, God had to address this line of thought. The word of the Lord came to me saying, what do you people mean by quoting this proverb in the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the teeth of the children are set on edge? As surely as I live, declares the Lord God, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. Behold, every soul belongs to me. Both father and son are mine. The soul who sins is the one who shall die. The people of Israel are going around complaining. Their teeth are set on edge because their fathers ate sour grapes. And that's a weird analogy. The Israelites, what they're really complaining, they're saying that God punished their fathers so hard that they're feeling it. They are convinced that God resents their fathers enough to take it out on them. It's a grape that's so sour that when you bite it, your kid goes, ew, that's gross. And God hates this accusation. He promises, as surely as I live, that's a big promise, as surely as I live, declares the Lord God, you will no longer quote this proverb in Israel. And the whole rest of Ezekiel 18 is God giving examples to make it perfectly clear exactly what he means. He says, a righteous man, a righteous father will not die because he has a wicked son. And a righteous son will not die because he has a wicked father. Then he says, if a man is righteous and he becomes wicked, he will die. And if a man is wicked, but he becomes righteous he will live. So it's not just a generational thing, but he's forgiving people of their sins if they become righteous. And he says multiple times in that chapter, the soul who sins shall die. The implication is not anyone else. The soul who sins shall die. God does not resent you for who your father is. And if he's forgiven your sins, he doesn't resent you for who you were either. That brings us back to our verse, Corinthians, that love is not resentful. Remember, in Exodus, God introduced himself as the God who forgives. God's forgiveness is not a wimpy forgiveness. It's a forgiveness that removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. I teach science, and if you didn't know, the earth is round. Yeah. And when you go east, you can keep going east. You can just keep going east. And you can go a bit further. Now, the crazy thing, the really crazy thing, is that you can actually keep going west, too. So God's forgiveness is a kind of forgiveness that actually forgives. He doesn't just say, oh, yeah, you're forgiven. And then keep track of it. Takes it away. And... He gives us standards of forgiveness, which should show us that he forgives us even more. In Matthew 18, when Jesus is asked how many times we should forgive, he basically says, lose count. And in Hebrews 8, God says that he will be merciful and he will never remember our sins. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven whose sin is covered. 
God's love is forgiving and not resentful, and it does not keep a record of wrongs. Now, I have a little side note here that I want to mention um, because it's, it makes sense to resent sin. Uh, it's actually possible to resent things that are not sin. <clears throat> People can do good things that we resent them for. Or bad things can happen to us and we can assign blame to someone. And it's really easy to shift blame to God because he's in charge of everything. Why would he let that happen? Life is hard for all of us in many different ways and we need to be here for each other to pray for and support one another. But if you've gone through something painful in your life or if you're having a really difficult time now, I feel the need to encourage you not to become resentful with God. You need to love God not be irritable with him and not resent him for the things that have happened to you in your life. Okay. These first two qualities of love that we practiced, we practice when sinned against, that is neither being irritable nor resentful, they may lead someone who sins against us to not realize that they've sinned against us. They might not think it's all that bad. Like if, if we are sinned against and we don't get angry and we never bring it up again, was it really that big a deal? It can be a, an idea in their head that their sin was not sin. And this is definitely something that the Corinthians need corrected. That's why I think Paul immediately follows those qualities of love with the next one, that love does not rejoice with wrongdoing. It does not rejoice with wrongdoing. We cannot condone sin. We can't make it good. And in order to not condone sin, we must not rejoice in the commission of sin, the contemplation of sin, or the consequences of sin. Let's start with not celebrating the commission of sin. This part is kind of common sense. If I'm at a school, if I'm teaching at school, and one of my students goes up to another student and very sincerely smacks them across the face, it would be bad. It would be worse for me to give them a high five and some extra credit. I'm the role model. I'm the teacher. I'm the leader. So for me to celebrate their commission of sin would be just awful. I think that part we all kind of get just naturally. We could probably afford to extend that into our entertainment choices as well. If what we're reading or watching or something I hear a bit more about listening to music, if that glorifies sin... If the main character or the main lesson is triumphing through evil, if there's never a whiff of justice or a glimmer of morality, then we should probably think about what it is we're celebrating when we enjoy that. Or what if people around you 
are talking about sin. What do we do then? It's kind of commission. If they're celebrating the commission of sin. Well, my wife went through what she calls her 20 minutes in the seventh circle of hell the other week. Um, Preface, I am making this seem much better than it was because I don't want to share details. Um, But there was an optional demonstration at her beauty school from some of the aesthetics students, and there were no teachers around. Okay, so there's about 10 girls sitting around engaging in what only a sadist would classify as girl talk. Um, They began to share tales and aspirations of sexual encounters. They discussed parts of their body that really shouldn't be mentioned and showed each other pictures. They complained, one girl complained that she wished she was high. So another girl pulls out her vape and starts passing it around. There were vulgarities and slurs flowing like sewage, and every second was darker and more disgusting than the last. And every time my poor wife thought it couldn't get any worse, it did. Most of the girls there were sharing, laughing, encouraging, celebrating each other's sin. A few of them were nodding and smiling, just being there. They would share one or two things. And poor Marissa zipped her lips and stared at the eyebrows that were being treated and tried to learn this technique. And given her situation, I think it's basically the best you can do. You just refuse to celebrate wrongdoing. The whole thing was quite overwhelming for her, and she called me to get it off her chest. And I was around students, and I was like, I need to go somewhere else. Um, And that's what Paul is telling us. When everyone around is proud of their sin, when everyone's celebrating the Corinthian guy who's sleeping with his mother, you can't join in. You can't be a part of that. You can't approve his sin. Love does not celebrate with wrongdoing. You can't give your approval of what is wicked. But that is exactly what the world wants you to do. Your co-workers or your classmates want you to wink, smile at their sin. They want you to be shocked or impressed or to congratulate them on their fleshly achievements. Romans 1 gives us the picture, dark and foolish hearts dishonoring God, people worshiping animals and the earth, men debasing themselves with men and women, debasing themselves with women. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. They don't only do them, but they give approval. They celebrate wrongdoing. They celebrate the bizarre, the unnatural, and even the demonic. They say that loving means affirming and rejoicing in everything, everything about a person. But love cannot celebrate wrongdoing. Love is discerning. It does not tolerate evil. 
Romans 1 says that these sinful people are receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. The whole section in Romans 1 begins, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. What God is punishing, we cannot celebrate. The commission of sin against God is only to be condemned and never rejoiced in, lest we communicate that we approve of sin. So we cannot uh, celebrate the commission of sin. And even if there's no one around to think you're approving, we must not rejoice in the contemplation of sin in others. I found this really great quote from the Puritan preacher Jeremiah Burroughs, and it helped me to understand this concept a bit better. He's talking about the kind of person who never sees anything good in others, but only finds pleasure in noticing the bad. And I've modernized his language a little bit because he said kite instead of vulture. We don't use that word anymore. It's a couple other things. So he says that Erasmus, the church father, tells of someone who collected all the lame and defective verses in Homer's works, but passed over all that were excellent. So these type of people, if they can spy anything defective and evil, they observe it and they gather all they can together, but will take no notice of that which is good and praiseworthy. Like the vulture who flies over the fair meadows and flowers and lights only upon the corpse, or like flies that love only to be upon the sore, wounded places of the horse's back. So the story is about this guy who was researching Homer's writings, but he would only collect like the typos and the mistakes. When you are thinking about other people, when you're speaking about other people, are you more drawn to the fair meadows of their soul or do you only land upon the corpses? Are you more likely to nag, complain, point out flaws or build up, encourage, and honor others? Do you take pleasure in thinking about the weaknesses and sins of other people? Because that is celebrating the contemplation of sin. This applies to how we think about all people. And while it's possible to come up in brief conversations, um, I'm pretty sure I've met someone, and in the five minutes that I knew them, all they talked about was complaining about other people. It's possible to come up in brief conversations. I think that this is most troublesome in our deeply committed and familial relationships. And it leads us to say or think things like, nothing I do is good enough for my mother. Or, my children don't want to spend time with me. Or, my spouse only ever complains about what I'm not doing rather than realizing how much I am doing. These are the things that we cause people to think if we only contemplate their sin, if we only land upon the corpses, if we only bring up the bad things about them, then they'll think, well, they don't love me. They don't want to be around me. 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we should not rejoice in the commission of sin, the contemplation of sin, and finally the consequences of sin. Because sin is not just limited to things we do. It affects all the things that happen to us and the events of the world. There are all sorts of effects of sin. Uh, People get sick, like Josh. Uh, Buildings collapse, depression takes hold of us. The main effect of sin is death. But there are all these little deaths along the way. But our God is a God of life. So how could we rejoice in death? We may be tempted to when something bad happens to someone we don't like, but that doesn't give us a pass to be happy that God's creation has been corrupted and is spotted with death. So we must not rejoice in the commission, the contemplation, or the consequences of sin. Now, if we ended the sermon here, we would have a lot of things on our to-not-do list. So we're going to finish out this sentence, take one more step, and have something positive to think about doing. Love rejoices with the truth. We rejoice in the truth because truth is beauty, it is freedom, it is victory. The psalm we read says that God's word, which is our source of truth, is sweeter than honey and more valuable than gold. It is beauty to be sought. Jesus said that the truth will set us free. It is a freedom to be enjoyed. And Jesus also said that he is the truth. God is truth. God reigns over all and he is victorious over all. Truth is victory. And the truth is what is real. To neglect rejoicing in the truth is to live in delusion. It leads to a life that is hideous and has no beauty. A life that is enslaved and has no freedom. And a life that is doomed to fail. There's no victory. So let us first rejoice with the truth of the past. It is good and joyful that we have a certainty of things past, and it's amazing that we have any certainty at all. We have this on a human level with records of events and of people's lives and teachings. But as we all know, there are a lot of ways to view things. Stories change over time, and memories fade. And long after something has happened, it can be forgotten, or it can be co-opted for other purposes but we also have a divine history, a real, true story of mankind, of sin and sacrifice and of redemption. There are so many things about history that I want to know and I will never know. Um, There's all these ancient civilizations and lost cities. There's explorers and kings. And uh, even in recent history, real facts of things are often obscured by politics or otherwise askewed. But there is one history book that is perfectly reliable. And therefore, we have a perfectly accurate record of at least one slice of the whole pie of history. And the really good news 
is that this slice of history is really good news. In this slice of history, God tells us how and why he created us. He tells us about himself and his plans, and he demonstrates his love for us in many ways, culminating in Christ. So rejoicing in the truth of the past can be just as easy as reading the word of God, meditating on it, and being grateful for it. We should also rejoice in the truth of the present. All those things that we know about the past that are true because of the Bible are going to have an immediate effect on us and our world. That's why I can stand up here and say that God's word applies to cancel culture and TikTok, but you won't find it in here. We're not left to figure it out all on our own. We should rejoice that God's truth addresses our own lives and the world around us. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And his word stands today. All the issues of our day have been spoken to either directly or by principle in the word of God. And we are blessed enough to have the collected writings and sermons and research of 2,000 years of pastors, evangelists, and theologians to help us out when we don't see so clearly how the word applies to what we see in the world. So we can rejoice in the truth now by gratefully putting into practice and belief what God has spoken. And we should especially rejoice when we see someone who has never known the truth come to a knowledge of the truth. We see the strength of truth in overcoming a sinful heart in real time, right now, and it is an occasion for great joy. And lastly, we should also rejoice in the truth of the future. There are a lot of things that will happen in the future. I'm certain of that. The details are fuzzy, though. Um, but I can sum up everything by reading just a couple of verses to you, one from Psalm 110 and two from 1 Corinthians 15. The first, Psalm 110. The Father says to Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. In the second two verses, 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26. Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Truth is victorious. My family has a favorite river in Colorado. You remember? You know what I'm talking about? Where we go fishing? The one place my father's caught a fish. <laughs> so we like to go there to go fishing, to have picnics. Um, now you remember. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's a beautiful place. It's really great. Um, and what's really cool is you can look up from the valley to the snow-capped mountains that the river is coming from. So when I look up, I have a pretty good idea where that water has come from. At least enough of an idea to make some application. Don't swim. <laughs> Very cold. And I know where that water is right now. And how pleasant it is just to be there and enjoy it. And I have no idea where that water goes. 
like really none. Uh, I think it's on, I'm not gonna look over there because I don't want to know. I think it's on the east side of the Continental Divide, not 100% sure. Um, I don't know how many states it goes through, which other rivers it meets up with, what lakes it fills and species live in it, but it goes to the ocean. This is a map of all the rivers in the United States with all the watersheds being colored different colors. And whether my river was in the yellow chunk, which is the Colorado River watershed, or the pink, which is the Mississippi River watershed, it's headed to the ocean. And that's what we know. We have that kind of knowledge about the future. It's with that same kind of knowledge that we can come to the table together. We can look back up in time and see Christ on the cross. We can look around and see truth having victory over sin. And we can look downstream to the end of all things. And though we don't know the path, we know that Christ will conquer all enemies, putting them under his feet, and then conquer death. I want to read Paul's description of the Lord's table, also from 1 Corinthians, and just ask you to notice that Paul is working with kind of a past, present, future framework. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So if you've put your faith in Christ's work on the cross, if you're walking in his love, and if your hope is in his return, then I would ask that you would celebrate the truth at the table together. Let's pray.